Rise! Welcome to Rise of RevOps. This episode features an interview with Michelle Tori Tunison, Chief Revenue Officer at Six Clicks. As the Six Clicks CRO, Michelle leads the sales and marketing team and is responsible for the company's revenue generation, strategy, and execution, as well as their go-to market approach. Michelle is a sales, channel, and enterprise account executive with more than 30 years of technology sales experience. Today, she'll describe the importance of cross-functional teams for optimizing revenue and which structures and cadences have worked best for her and her career career. But first, a word from our sponsor. Rise of RevOps is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified's Pipeline Cloud is the future of pipeline generation for revenue teams that use Salesforce. Learn more about the Pipeline Cloud on Qualified.com. Welcome to Rise of RevOps. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Rise of RevOps is always presented by the great people at Qualified. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. And I am joined by a special guest, Michelle. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, excited to chat, excited to talk RevOps, excited to talk six clicks. So let's get into it. First role in RevOps? First role in a global revenue position, for sure. Pretty exciting time to to come in, own revenue, and oh, by the way, own RevOps. And we're going to get into to all that stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about Six Clicks. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, Six Clicks as a company was founded in 2019, headquartered in Melbourne, Australia. We are a GRC SaaS platform. GRC stands for Governance, Risk, and Compliance. So we help uh, risk and compliance and information security practitioners not only manage their cybersecurity programs, but also uh, manage their regulatory obligations and manage risk for their organization, as well as be able to report up on their risk posture to their board and investors, clients, et cetera. And what types of uh, customers do you have? The GRC space has been around for about 30 years, Ian. And so it's it's fairly mature, particularly in the US market. I think the UK is, is second in terms of reg tech maturity, and then Australia would be third just in terms of embracing technology and getting off of spreadsheet to manage a GRC program. Uh, The types of clients that we have historically have always spanned more regulated markets, but we're moving away from that. You know, at this point, most organizations realize that they are at potential to be under attack or be held by some sort of ransomware threat. They also have obligations to their board and their clients to instill confidence and trust. And so organizations are now moving away from a need to have GRC to, um, excuse me, a nice to have to a need to have so that they can really get their arms around not only managing the complexities of regulatory compliance, but also being able to report out and instill confidence. And I was going to suggest that you probably haven't heard on your show, I'd be surprised if you had, that risk practitioners or information security practitioners have ever been involved in RevOps. But if they aren't, they should be because Six Clicks and GRC as a concept, as a methodology, has the ability to enable driving revenue. So it's a business enabler. So if an organization invests heavily in information security best practices, as well as a certification like ISO 27001, for example, they actually then have the ability to, like I said, instill confidence in their business associates, their investors, their board, and their clients who want to know and they want the assurance that their data is secure if they give it to those companies. So without having the ability to manage that, I think it puts an organization at risk for growing or getting to their next objective. 
RevOps is really a cross-functional discipline that is designed to optimize revenue, both existing revenue uh, in terms of protecting it, as well as growing your revenue stream. And when I say cross-functional, I mean it, it really touches every portion of the organization from, well, the obvious sales and marketing, but also customer success. Back office oftentimes has to be involved in uh, RevOps. And as I said, I think information security should play a role in that as well. Yeah. How do you think about RevOps in your company? Obviously, you know, y'all are in a, a massive enterprise. So a lot of this stuff, you have to have your hands a little bit more in as, as CRO. Yeah, I think being able to make metrics-based decisions or database decisions is critical in any size organizations, but particularly those that are smaller because you're running leaner with fewer people and not so deep pockets. So you have to be a lot more thoughtful and a lot better informed about the decisions that you're making. And I think RevOps is critical to being able to bring that empirical data to the conversation. Yeah, I think about this all the time where, especially when you just don't have as large a data sets that there's just so much noise (laughs) rather than signals. And you're like, oh, is that, you know, with whatever, a hundred accounts versus a thousand versus, you know, whatever, or whatever the thing is, just to take sweeping generalizations from the data is perhaps a fool's errand. Not just generalizations, but also vanity metrics. I think a lot of people get caught up in only portraying the metrics that reflect well on them because, you know, they're protecting their jobs or they're, you know, trying to promote uh, the organization to outsiders or investors, where I think the metrics become really critical and invaluable is if you're able to derive real uh, findings from them, right? Findings that can inform those decisions and help you pivot if you're not doing something properly or if If there's a market segment that isn't responding uh, as well as you'd like it to, then those metrics give you the ability to make those decisions. So obviously you don't have like a huge RevOps team or anything like that. Uh, How do you think about staffing RevOps and, and making sure that you, you know, have a function that can exist? I think about it in terms of uh, our tech stack that we use to a large degree, bringing in individuals that have the ability to run the applications that we rely on pretty heavily and manipulate those applications to meet our needs for reporting and and information the way that we need that information depicted. So that that experience, that skill set will drive the staffing of the RevOps team. Yeah. Do you feel like if you're a smaller company like y'all that, or like a startup or, you know, whether it's series A startup or series B startup or someone like that, how do you think about like investments in RevOps and like, when should you do stuff like that? It's going to vary. I think organization by organization, Ian, I was fortunate when I joined just shy of two years ago that we already had a CRM in place when I came in. We didn't have a lot of historical data because the company is so young, but we had at least one year's worth of data. So we've since obviously built on that. We now have three years worth of data that we can leverage. I think uh, having a sales operations person is critical. We do have a customer success team and we track data like clients that are at risk of churn, clients that have churned, and we profile those accounts and those deals and those clients by quite a few different data metrics that we slice those. You know, what type of account are they? Are they an advisor? Are they a reseller? Are they an end user? You know, at what point did they churn? What are we hearing from the account? There's just a lot of metrics that we keep. And we've got several dashboards that we publish and projected a variety of different people in the organization. All right, let's get into our first segment, Rev Obstacles, where we talk about the tough parts yeah. of RevOps. Obstacle, obstacle. An obstacle to what? There's your obstacle! Yeah, what's the hardest RevOps problem uh, that you faced in the last you know, six months to a year? 
I think personally, it was coming into an organization that is uh, headquartered outside of the U.S. and trying mm. to operate within the U.S. Um, it's the first time I've operated in a global role where the organization was outside of the U.S. So having to come in and use Australian contracts for other jurisdictions, whether it be the U.K. or the U.S., has presented some challenges. So I've had to regionalize our contracts. I've had to come together with our legal group and bring those contracts into a more fair and balanced language um, model so that contract negotiations don't drag on and on and on for months and also meet the needs of the jurisdiction of the client that you're talking to or working with. Yeah, that's challenging. I mean, is that something that, you know, something where you just try to do a sprint, try to say like, how do we fix this? Or is that sort of like an ongoing thing that constantly needs tweaking and readjusting? I think over time you learn the callouts that you're going to run into that become regular callouts, right? Almost as though they're the FAQs you can expect from every contract cycle. And so if you have enough of a pattern that you've defined, you can then take that to your legal group and say, okay, this situation comes up in every single negotiation that we're dealing with. Let's head that off at the pass and change the language. And I think ultimately it's about reducing the friction, right? Minimizing the time to get a deal closed by reducing friction and creating a more fair and balanced approach to negotiating with the legal team. You know, that was going to be one of my questions is, is it just sort of like back office paperwork type stuff that holds things up or is it like real friction to getting deals done? Because those two things are coincide with each other or they can be like, yeah, you know, it's just kind of a back office problem, but you know, it ain't slowing down velocity. No, I think it's legitimate. It's legitimate legal issues. The The things that we had tended to run into before I started addressing this was limitation of liability, indemnification, intellectual property, infringement, data privacy. Those were sort of the key areas that we would run into. And then jurisdictionality or geographically related things such as the limitation of liability cap and insurance coverage translated to the currency that you're operating in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So it, it was running into quite a bit of complexity and I just sort of put the kibosh on that. I said, there are ways that we can address this. This isn't rocket science. So I love that. Talk about a RevOps problem. That is definitely a RevOps problem. You're like, hey, how come uh, how come deals are slowing down? It's like, oh, our, the way that we're doing our... Uh, you know, contracts with are going through seven rounds of legal review because of the cost of the insurance. So I've been through all that stuff before, so I know exactly how that goes. Yeah. And uh, it's absolutely brutal. And that's the last thing you want when you've got a, a happy customer who you've been through a full sales cycle with, which in and of itself may have taken some time. Last thing you want to do is drag it through the legal mud. You could just say that for your entire life. The last thing you want to do in any situation is drag anything through the legal mud. Yeah. The lawyers always disagree with me on that, where they're like, no, they want to add more mud. But yeah, that's a, it's a good rev obstacle. How do you balance supporting sales marketing and, and customer success with a, with a smaller team? Very long days, uh, <laughs> to be <laughs> candid. I'm also dealing with multiple time zones, so uh, I'm not lying when I say the days are long. I start quite early in the morning working with clients in the UK and in some cases India, and then late into the evening working with Australia. But generally speaking, you know, again, just like the contracts issue, it's not rocket science, it's structure, uh, bringing structure to an organization and defining a cadence. So creating some regular meetings and touch points and setting expectations of uh, all of the team members and making sure to give accolades where they're due. You know, a lot of people thrive on, on getting credit as they should, and it's free. 
and it doesn't take much effort. So I'm a firm believer in making sure to give credit where it's due. Yeah, I'm curious, like as a CRO who's thinking about go to market, getting in front of folks, closing deals, and then, you know, figuring out that the customer success side, when you're balancing the rev ops sort of goals, you mentioned like sales ops is a key part of that. Are you thinking about things like, hey, let's prioritize like our go to market closing deals with whatever, 70% of our RevOps bandwidth and then 20% CS and then 10% with additional, you know, sort of things? Or how do you think about prioritizing when you are a resource-constrained younger startup? I hate saying this as an answer, but it it is heavily dependent on what your long-term objective is. If your goal is to have some sort of an exit as an organization, then driving revenue is the number one priority. But I think organizations should consider at what cost they drive that revenue. And that helps dictate the priorities. So if your entire goal is you've got to get every deal in the door you possibly can and damn the churn, it doesn't matter, then you drive hard at revenue. But most organizations who have investors and have a responsibility to those investors really try to balance that. And so that dictates the priority for how you spend your time. Any other thoughts on um, on rev obstacles or maybe a rev oops moment? Any rev oops moments that you've made? Yeah, I would say if I could turn the clock back and do something differently, when I joined Six Clicks, I got pretty hard for having a BDR kind of telemarketing team, outbound, dialing for dollars sort of team. Because we didn't have a dedicated marketing team here in the States, I thought, oh, this would be a good way to get some leads. And I learned pretty quickly, and we pivoted quickly as well. We failed quickly on this one. Um, Buyers just don't buy that way anymore. And so that whole telemarketing concept, I think, is dead. It's a thing of the past. Buyers now buy pretty much self-servicing through digital resource and education online. Most CISOs do not take cold calls. They don't want to be reached out to via email. Although I will say we do have some pretty strong response and click-through rates on our email campaigns. But nevertheless, the whole BDR model didn't work well. You know, understanding how buyers buy today and the need to develop digital assets that they'll consume prior to even having a conversation with you, I think is important. I love that. That's a great shout because, I mean, I feel the same way, you know, it's things that we hear a a lot of. And a similar sort of thing that you just said is, you know, when you're seeing those click-through rates or you're seeing people clicking on emails and looking at that stuff, that speaks to the pain. I mean, clearly there's a massive pain in the GRC space. Clearly this is something, as you mentioned, is going from nice to have to need to have. So if it's a need to have, people need to have it, right? They just don't want to be called on their personal phone, you know? They just don't want to be called while they're at the gym. They don't want to be called while they're in 5,000 meetings. And the thing is like most executives look at their calendar and it's literally their Google calendar is stacked from, you know, sunup to sundown with meetings. So when would you even reach them? And what are they going to do? Call you back? I mean, it's a crazy notion. I mean, if you're selling to someone else who has a phone, like a pizza place, and I would be open to seeing the data there. But if you're selling to senior executives, like no chance. Yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah. So I'm curious then with that sort of knowledge in mind, what did you shift toward? More digital asset and trying to support the buyer's journey, you know, at the various stages of the journey with a variety of resources. So we've got a a GRC buying guide that we've put together that has, you know, uh, active links in it, which gets them to even more data like an ROI calculator. We have started soliciting reviews from our clients so that buyers can go online and, and look at reviews of other users that have leverage the platform. So we're really investing heavily in some of those areas. 
interesting that a lot of those things would be potentially like a CMO function or a marketing function. It seems like you kind of see revenue as a little bit more fluid with sales and marketing as sort of like a more joint go-to-market motion. Is that fair to say? It's, I mean, it seems that way from the way you talk about it. It is today. It is. Uh, you know, I think at some point we're going to hit a maturity milestone and, and that'll be decoupled. Our CEO is also actually quite active in our marketing, both from a campaign development standpoint, ad development, as well as, I mean, he himself does quite a few interviews, podcasts, and contribution articles and things like that. So very cool. Yeah. All right. Let's get to our next segment, the tool shed. We're talking tools, spreadsheets, and metrics, just like everyone's favorite tool, Qualified. No B2B tool shed is complete without Qualified. Go to qualified.com right now and check them out, especially if, if you're in RevOps. You got to have Qualified. Uh, if you're using Salesforce, go to qualified.com. Hey, hey Brandon, Michael, want to do me and mom a favor? Get off that shed. This is my favorite place, <laughs> the tool shed. Get off the shed! Okay, Michelle, what's in your tool shed right now? So the CRM that I inherited when I joined was HubSpot and hadn't used it prior to six clicks, but I've actually grown to really enjoy the platform. Uh, we used it extensively for not just you know tracking deals and managing forecast pipeline, but all of our ad campaigns, event campaigns, and so forth run through HubSpot, as well as lots of reporting and dashboarding capability and collaboration. I think it's a, a great collaboration tool. That's our CRM. Sales Intel, we use ZoomInfo for sales intelligence, of course, LinkedIn. And then I've been researching recently RFP response solutions. There are several out there, but we try to avoid RFPs, but they're not entirely avoidable. And when you do have to respond to one, they tend to be really time consuming. So these tools will allow you to sort of replicate previous responses and give you the ability to I would say shave 80% of the work off by repurposing some of the the responses you've already delivered in previous RFP responses. That's cool. Yeah, so I'm uh, really looking forward to moving forward with that. And then the last thing I use is, uh, actually, this is for the interview process of finding good salespeople, which is always a challenge for sales managers looking to hire. I use an online uh, assessment tool, sales assessment tool, that takes into consideration it's not a psychological analysis of any sort, but it does take into consideration how an individual themselves buy. So let's say you, Ian, you're making a decision on a, a large purchase, whether it be a home or a car or a piece of land or a vacation. How do you consider buying that large item? Do you give it a long time to think about it? Do you do a ton of research or do you just first thing that comes along that you really like, you jump in and make the decision. Based on how you buy, you will also sell that same way. So you'll either allow people very long time to consider, think it over, you know, look at competitors, look at alternatives, you know, wait for the sale to happen, <laughs> you know, the discount versus, you know, you're going to try to drive to closure because you yourself operate in that way. So those are the types of things that this sales assessment tool looks for. And then among other capabilities, I, I look for several attributes that are must-haves in a sales candidate for me. So that's a really helpful tool. What metrics matter to you? Well, as I mentioned, uh, I do try to avoid the vanity metrics. I think using leading indicators is really critical. So things like number of meetings per week, number of deals created in a month, uh, number of quotes going out the door, probabilities, excuse me, close ratios, deal velocity. Those are the types of things that you 
can use to get a, a fairly predictable picture of revenue, at least in the six-month term, I'd say. What about something that you wish you could measure, maybe a blind spot? I wish that there's a way to get more data about losses. That's usually the biggest area that any organization struggles in. I don't think that we're unique in this in that respect. Knowing which competitors you're up against, what the competitive landscape looks like, you can generally find out some information about that. But if you lose, it's nearly impossible to get that client back to the table to explain what could have tipped the scale in your favor or why it didn't go your way. And that's really important information from a learning standpoint. So I'd say that's the biggest blind spot. That's more from traditional sales standpoint. I guess from a RevOps standpoint, if you don't have uh, the proper you know, leading indicators that I mentioned, it makes it nearly impossible to make uh, empirical decisions. And then you're just really kind of relying on gut instinct <laughs> with some data. Yeah. So... We just did a really cool episode that hasn't come out yet about win-loss analysis that's going to be very fun. We talked with the team that closed and they shared a bunch of data about win-loss and essentially whatever the rep puts in is the reason why a loss is usually not right. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah, pretty funny. Anything cool that you're doing with data? I know obviously it's, again, an early stage company, so you don't exactly have an entire data science team, I, I'm guessing, that are at your beck yeah. and call. But I went through an exercise just literally a couple of weeks ago where um, I expanded our pipeline to include a couple more stages. I think I added three new stages. Mm. Because what uh, I had this sort of effect, what I would call just the easy bucket effect going on with the sales reps where they were dropping pretty much every deal into a specific category, but it was very difficult for me to understand truly how closable that deal was or how winnable it was in the month. So I added more granularity and I'm also forcing them to using HubSpot workflows to answer specific questions before they can even move a deal into the next stage. So they have to stop and think about what they're doing and actually acknowledge that they've kind of gotten that deal, you know, through the next gate, as it were. And then the other thing I included in that workflow was this concept of tagging uh, within HubSpot, which is really cool. And we're using it to identify three different indicators on deals. One of them is closing within 30 days. So this is a way to just kind of look at the pipeline and, and easily visually see which deals are coming within 30 days. Uh, we've got a tag defined as a strategic deal. These are ones that are over a hundred grand. And then uh, the third tag is whether or not a deal is in, in trial. So they actually have their hands in the tool pre-sales. Very cool. Can you share so a little bit more about how many stages you have now total? And I love, I could talk stages <laughs> all day. I love stages. <laughs> I think it's like one That's of those things that the RevOps leader and CRO and maybe the sales ops person and the reps, everybody disagrees on what the stages should be. So I, I love, I love talking stages. That's funny. I've got nine stages before closed one. Cool. Okay. Can you share generally what they are? Yeah, I'll share hundred percent what they are. So prospect suspect is the first one lead or registered deal. So our deals don't start necessarily when a lead comes in, um, qualified, Discovery demo is the next stage. Decision maker bought in. Proposal sent. Approved for purchase. Vendor onboarding. Contracting procurement. And then closed one. Yeah, that's interesting. So you have so many post-commitment there because of procurement and all the stuff that goes into that. So which ones did you add? So I added uh, vendor onboarding and approved for purchase. 
Because generally speaking, most of the deals we're doing these days are all net new logos. So we're not in these accounts already. And so there is very much a a vendor onboarding component. And that's one of the things that wasn't being accounted for previously that was creating delays. What I've seen with this is that you have massive delays potentially, and the deal still usually almost always closes, but it really messes up your forecast. You obviously miss a month, miss a quarter, whatever because of those vendor onboarding pieces and the procurement. And I don't know if you feel this way, but procurement right now in the current market is under way different scrutiny than it was obviously a year or two years ago. So it's just an extra layer of procurement. There's times where like that can actually kill a deal now where I feel like, you know, years ago, like procurement's probably not killing most deals. They're going to ask for a discount, but they're not going to kill it. Mm -hmm. It's so true, Ian. I had a situation last month where we literally... On a Friday, we're told, budget's there, it's been approved, we're going in for signature tonight, Uh, we'll send you the signed contract on Monday. Monday rolled around, they said, yeah, we went in for signature, and we literally were told that it was reneged. So they lost budget. I've seen the same thing. Everybody's in agreement, decision maker, senior leader, everybody all the way to the top, and then procurement pulls the plug. Someone in finance said, nope. Yeah, there's so much contraction going on right now in the market. And I think it's going to be that way for some time. And we're heading into an election year that's typically cause for concern with organizations, or it's paralyzing, I should say, in terms of decision making. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a really interesting piece because I think that, you know, those final few stages, I mean, I don't know if you have like percentage numbers associated with those those final few stages, but I mean, it's got to at least shave off a couple percentage points for each of those later stages. We do. Yeah, we definitely advance the deal into a higher probability when they're in those stages, but they're still not a, a done. It's not a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that stage stuff? Oh, you mentioned that there was like certain things that they have to answer when they go into those. Is that just like something in the CRM that they have to answer like a question or how does that work? Yeah. So if a rep wants to advance a deal into the vendor onboarding stage, they have to answer, uh, is a security questionnaire necessary? Because we ourselves are being Mm -hmm. assessed by customers for our security posture. Uh, And then they have to answer, I'm trying to remember the other one, vendor onboarding forms, I believe is the other question. And it's really, you know, we're not soliciting specific data from them. It's just a reminder that, hey, you need to go make sure these things are happening before this deal gets dropped into this category. This is like one of those things that I always wonder who should do what for these things. Because, gosh, I think there's just more room for even more specialization with this, like, when does onboarding happen? Who's in charge of onboarding? When does the, like, account manager come in? Or if you keep it with an AE or however they're structured to just like knock out some of these admin tasks. But it's like at the end of the day, like it ain't closed until it's signed. Every AE on earth knows that. So if you want this thing to get signed, sealed, delivered, you got to make sure that that stuff is done. Yeah, no question. You know, one thing we talked about, this idea of cybersecurity. Now that fits into RevOps. What do you think? Should RevOps people be thinking about cybersecurity? How should they be thinking about cybersecurity? Uh, I think RevOps people are usually on the receiving end of cybersecurity measures because they're, you know, employees in an organization where they have to read and attest to certain policies like an acceptable use policy or mobile device policy or those types of things. So 
generally speaking, RevOps people aren't exposed beyond their you know, security training that they get at, at their new employee onboarding or once a year thereafter, which is a requirement of most regulations and most best practices. They say you have to have security awareness training. For your employees, you also have to publish your policies and the employees have to attest that they've read them. But conversely, I think information security practitioners should be thinking about revenue and how to speak to the business about driving revenue based on their own information security program. One of the things that I've heard from a couple different CISOs is that they tend to wear a target on their back because when there's a breach, not if, when there's a breach, they're the first guy out the door. So one of the ways to protect your position and shore up the fact that you're valuable to the organization beyond just protecting the organization is to create this story of foundational trust, right? As an organization, these are the things that we have done to ensure that the data of our partners and the data of our customers and the data of our investors is safe and secure. And if you can uh, affirmatively state that, then companies can take on new projects, they can release new products in the market, they can go into a new market segment that they've been considering for quite a while, they can make investment decisions, so on and so forth. So I think it's it's actually uh, liberating to have that awareness and understanding of a strong risk posture, assuming that the, the CISO is, is managing you to a strong risk posture. <laughs> One thing also too that RevOps people need to look at from a security standpoint it's just like, obviously, first-party data is so important now, mm-hmm. and it'll be interesting to see how RevOps people are going to be able to leverage their data, leveraging third-party data and cookies and all that stuff. It'll be fascinating to see what we can and can't do going forward, because I think it's going to be pretty different. Mm-hmm. Any other uh, tool stuff? You had mentioned sort of, I like that, uh, the RFP stuff. I've after being in a couple of those this year, and like, you're right, man, I wish I could take 80% of my time back on those. Uh, if we can go back retroactively and do it. Any other things that you want to invest in or things that you want to look at investing in? I know it's when you're a small company too, it's like, or when you're a growing startup, you're like, there's so many more things that you want and you need to figure out how to you know weave in there. So any other areas that you're looking at? There are few other small applications that I've heard about. We use an application called Kiflo for our partner portal. It allows our partners to do deal registrations. And then we have another application that we use called Thinkific, which is um, for our Six Clicks Academy. So we do online self-paced training courses for our customers and partners. And then there's some other things that I have my eye on, Clay.com, Avoma. It's essentially gives you the ability to create consistency around meetings, note-taking, and um, what questions were asked and so forth. It, it's almost essentially like a note taker. It makes the reps better informed. Um, so that one's actually quite interesting to me. I've got that on my radar. I haven't done anything with it yet, but keeping an eye on it. Cool. Very cool. All right, let's get into our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Quick hits. Michelle, are you ready? I'll try to be. <laughs> If you could make any animal any size, what animal would it be and what size? Um, you have absolutely stumped me on this one, Ian. <laughs> I even asked my husband earlier today, what, how do I answer this question? And it was, uh, we just had a good laugh about it. I mean, I have a 16-pound dog, so he might be offended if I supersized any other animal <laughs> and brought them home because he thinks he's a big dog. So 
<laughs> All right. How about your favorite book, podcast, TV show, something you're checking out? Ooh, that one. Let's see. Um, I read a sales book recently by the HubSpot CRO, and I can't remember the, the title. Hold on. I can look it up for you. I got you. Was it the sales acceleration formula? Yes. That was a really fantastic book. What's the gist? Really collaborating closely with your marketing team, marketing department. And this particular CRO used to be an engineer in a prior life. And so he brought along yeah. his, you know, measure twice, cut once philosophy to sales. And nothing he did, no decision he made, no hire he made was done without a lot of uh, analysis and a lot of thought and a lot of discussion. But it was database decisions, data driven decisions, kind of operating in a vacuum, you know, without the collaboration of marketing or without the collaboration of the other uh, business organizations really, you know, just makes you ineffective. So I'd say that uh, that was probably the biggest takeaway for me. And just the way that they went to market with the digital assets and the, the blog posts and volumes and volumes of content that isn't necessarily related to their product. It's just content that's enticing and that draws people in. That's been hugely effective for them. Do you have a best piece of advice for someone who is a CRO trying to figure this whole thing out? Yes. I think instinct without context is futile. Instinct without data is futile. So while it's important to follow your gut, I think having data is critical. You can't operate without it. Michelle, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, for our listeners, if you need that, go give an elbow to your CISO and say, check out Six Clicks for our GRC software. Really cool. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Prioritize finding ways to make improvements in your organization that'll eliminate the need to discount. Couldn't agree more, but it's so hard. And then Chairman wants a discount. Everybody wants a discount. It's crazy times. I don't know. What do you do? Sell value. Sell value. Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rise of RevOps. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening. This podcast was created by the team at Qualified. The Pipeline Cloud is the modern way. B2B revenue teams generate pipeline. Learn more at qualified.com.